Hey, let's thank Robbie and friends for leading us again. Let's just thank them real quick. For you in the balcony, so glad that you're here. You are a long way away, but uh, I, I just feel a special connection with you tonight. That sounded really creepy. Anyway, um, hey, so glad you're here. If this is your first time to Vertical, let me just introduce myself. My name is Timothy Atik. I'm the executive director of Vertical Ministries right here in Waco, Texas. And uh, so glad that you made it tonight. I'll tell you this, as I was preparing for tonight, uh, I couldn't help but think of, uh, of Where's Waldo. Do you guys remember Where's Waldo? Do you remember this guy? Let's put this guy up. You guys, that's him, right? You don't remember this guy? You do or you don't? All right, that's all I need to hear. Let's just put up one Where's Waldo slide real quick so we can play along. There it is. Y'all see him? I see him. I found him. He's right there in the left corner. Uh, Anyway, that's that's Waldo. Uh, I did cheat because uh, I planned ahead. But anyway, um, as I was thinking about Waldo, I came to two realizations. Here, Here they are. Number one, the first realization I had about Waldo is that he had to have been like one of the first... Uh, hipsters out there because he was wearing a beanie in the summer before any of you guys were. True story. Anyway, it's the first realization I had. I was kind of dumb. But anyway, second realization I had about Waldo is that he was always surrounded by people, right? Like if you ever found yourself sitting in the doctor's office And, you know, when I was a kid, whenever I would go to the pediatrician, I would always go for the Where's Waldo books. And if I ever found myself studying the Where's Waldo books, the reality was Waldo was always in the middle of the crowd. He was always surrounded by people, yet he was always distinguishable. This is a true statement about Waldo. Waldo was always in the world, yet somehow he looked different than it. And that statement that I just made about Waldo should actually be true of anyone in this room who would claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You should be in the world, yet your life should look different from the world. Why? Because Jesus Christ is in the business of of radically changing people's lives, period. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a section of the Bible called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a bit found at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount. I told you that this whole semester, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. But specifically, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, The Beatitudes are eight statements that Jesus Christ makes about what it should look like to know and follow Jesus. The thing that makes these eight statements so unique is that every single statement begins with the Greek word makarios. And I've told you every single week that makarios has two meanings. It can mean blessed or it can mean happy. And I like both translations. I like the translation happy because each of these eight statements is going to tell us how to have a truly happy life, like a a life that is truly grounded in joy. And that's what we all want, right? Every single one of us wants a life that is truly full of lasting joy. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of life you want? Well, here's what you need to know. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are meek. And he just rips off for us one after another. Here is what it looks like to find that type of life. But then that word makarios can also be translated as blessed. And here's what these eight statements are telling us. It's telling us This is the type of man or woman that is truly acceptable to God. This is the man or woman that God truly believes is blessed. So here's what you need to know. If you were to look at what the Beatitudes tells you is a man or woman acceptable to God, and you were to look at the world and what the world says is an acceptable man or woman, you would look at the Beatitudes and you would say, this is different. Like, this is different. This is very different than this. 
The Beatitudes tell us what it looks like to truly know and follow Jesus. Therefore, if you in this room claim to be someone who knows and follows Jesus, your life should look different. It should. Let me just catch you up on what we've talked about. Let me just tell you why your life should look different. We started out the first week and we talked about how Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What he's saying there is to be poor in spirit is is to see who you are in light of who God is. It's to realize that you have have nothing that God uh, wants or needs and you've done nothing that God desires or requires. You are flat broke before God. And when you see that you are flat broke before God, what ends up happening is you see your sin for what it is and you feel this deep regret and sadness over it. That's why Jesus then says, blessed or happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Because when you see your sin for what it is and you cry out to Jesus for comfort, he floods your life with the comfort that comes from complete forgiveness and a new start in life. That's the first reason why your life should look different because you've been forgiven and made new by the God of the universe. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. We talked last week that meekness is the idea of trusting in God's goodness and control in all circumstances. It's the idea of rolling all of your anxiety and worry onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ. So your life should look different because you don't have to shoulder all of the stresses, all of the anxieties, all the frustrations in your life because the Lord of Lords and King of Kings has offered to shoulder it for you. Your life should look different. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to desire to be like the king. It's a desire to be like Jesus. Your life should look different because you don't want to be like the world wants you to be. You want to be like the king wants you to be. Your life looks different. If you notice, in the eight statements, the first four that we just talked through all deal with your relationship with God. They deal with how you relate to and respond to God. The way you relate to God should look different than the way that the rest of the world relates to God. And now here we're going to go into the back four. And Jesus is going to kind of turn a corner. And instead of focusing primarily on how your life should look different in terms of how you relate to God, he's going to focus on how your life should look different in terms of how do you how you relate to the people around you. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. I feel like we've been moving too fast because the last two weeks we did two Beatitudes each week, so we're going to just slow it down and do one today. It's not a good sign, honestly. But anyway, here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus says this, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So Jesus kind of turns a corner and here's why he turns a corner. A love for God and a love for people always go together in the Bible. They always do. A love for God and a love for people always go together. When a lawyer is questioning Jesus, and he's talking with Jesus about what the the greatest commandments are, Jesus says the first two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says all of the law is summed up in these. These two go together, a love for God and a love for people. So when you respond rightly to God, like in the first four Beatitudes, then inevitably your life should turn a corner in terms of the way that you relate to the people around you. And Jesus starts off and he says this, blessed are those who are merciful. You want to know what kind of man or woman is truly acceptable and pleasing to God? It is a man or woman that is, who is merciful. Do you know what it means to be merciful? You know what mercy is? Mercy is compassion in action. 
That's what mercy is. Mercy is compassion in action. Specifically, it is compassion in action toward those who are miserable in life. You really want to get your mind around mercy, then you have to start with Jesus. Let me just read you what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is going to kind of... um, This is going to put mercy in perspective for us. Paul says this. I cannot find it. Let me read it on the screen. It says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let me just stop there real quick before we go on. Okay, here's what you need to know. It doesn't matter who you are, every single one of us, if there is a God, we all want to know that we are right with God, right? If there is a God, we all want to know that we're right with them. Paul, at the very beginning, Ephesians chapter 2, he tells us the state of every single soul in the history of mankind that does not know Jesus. He says this, you are dead. You are spiritually dead. You are a dead man walking. You may be physically alive, but you are spiritually dead. And that idea that we are spiritually dead has two implications. The first implication it has is separation. You think about death. When there is a physical death, the soul separates from the body, right? That's what happens when physical death takes place. The soul separates from the body. Where there is spiritual death, there is a separation between the soul and the body. And God. Every single one of us, because we fall short of God's standard, which is perfection, every single one of us are spiritually dead. Doesn't matter how good you think you are, in God's eyes, you are a dead man walking. And what you deserve, what is in store for you, is eternal separation from God. The other implication it has when we say that we are spiritually dead. It implies hopelessness. Because what Paul doesn't say is that you are spiritually sick. To be spiritually sick is to imply that all you need to do is is, um, take some medicine to make yourself spiritually healthy. He doesn't say that you're spiritually bad, implying that all you need to do is start being spiritually good. No, he says you are spiritually dead, implying that there's absolutely nothing you can do To make yourself right with God. But then watch what happens in verse 4. Go ahead and put it up. It says this, but God, being rich in what? Mercy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Here's what happens. God sees our miserable predicament. He sees that we are a people who are spiritually dead. Imagine that. That is a miserable existence. It is a miserable existence to know that you are not right with God and there's nothing that you can do about it. Now, people in this world do an incredible job of pacifying their misery by putting the idea of death out of their mind. They don't want to think about the day that they will die, but when it boils down to it, people in this world are terrified of death. They're terrified of that idea of not being right with God. So people work their butts off to try and get right with God through doing good things. But if the Bible is right, there's nothing you can do. And that is a miserable predicament. God, being rich in mercy, looked upon our predicament and his compassion went into action. And God sent Jesus Christ into this world. And he lavished us in mercy. Because our sin became Jesus' sin. And our penalty of death became Jesus' penalty of death. And Jesus' resurrection to life has become our resurrection to life. 
through faith in Jesus Christ. See, this is what mercy is. Mercy is compassion in action toward those who are miserable in life. And what Jesus is getting at here is if you have experienced the mercy of God, then the only right thing to do is to begin to extend mercy to people around you. And what Jesus does in the Gospels is he tells us two different stories to kind of bring clarity to how mercy plays out in our lives. He tells two stories to, in a sense, move us from the classroom to the lab, to move us from the theoretical to the practical. So we need to look at those two stories. The first one is the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's found in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, I, I want you to flip over to Luke chapter 10 because we're going to be there for a few minutes. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Starting in verse 30, let me read this for you. It says this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, what's that word? Compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus says this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus is saying, this story I'm telling you because it demonstrates mercy and it's showing you how I want you to go out and actually live. So let's just kind of talk through the story real quick. Here's a man making a journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's a journey of about 17 or 18 miles. It's a windy, um, rocky path. That It's, it, it's a descent of about 3,000 um, 3, feet. Okay? So it's, it's downhill, windy, rocky, and it is notoriously dangerous. This guy traveling by himself, he gets jumped, he gets robbed, he gets beaten, and the story says that he's left half dead. And what you need to realize is there's no 911 at this time. There's no 911 because 911's not a thing because cell phones aren't a thing. Some of y'all are like, ew, okay, how did they even survive, all right? Uh, but there was no ill. No cell phones, okay? Cell phones weren't a thing. Um, There's no ambulances on the way. There's no cars passing by. He can't tweet out dying, hashtag, something, whatever. He can't put the hashtag at the end, my fault. All right. Can't do that. It's terrible. I'm 34. Okay, that's the way it goes. You can't do that. So that what we're left to assume is that this guy is on his way to his death because there is absolutely no one there to help him. The only way that he will not die is if someone comes along and does something about it. So what happens? Well, two guys come and pass by. And it's interesting who passes by him because it's a priest and a Levite. These are like really respected religious men. These are the people who lead the worship services. 
Like the worship services don't happen without the priests and the Levites. And these guys, I think that they cross the street. It says that they pass by. We don't know why they pass by. We don't know if it's because they were in a time crunch and they just didn't feel like they had time. We don't know if it was because they just assumed that someone else would take care of it. We don't know if it's because they just didn't want to because in that day and age, if someone was dead and you touched a dead body, it made you unclean for a particular period of time. And so maybe they're looking at the guy, they're like, he did, all right? And so they're thinking, I'm not touching that because I don't have time to be unclean. We don't know. But what we do know is a Samaritan comes along. And did you see the wording? What did it say? It said, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And then what was the next words? He went to him. That's what mercy is. It is compassion in action. Here's another way to to define mercy. Mercy is pity with legs. Mercy is pity with legs. You know what it's like to feel pity? Let me just, let me describe something that happened to you over Christmas break for me. And you just tell me if you've ever experienced this before, okay? Over Christmas, um, you know, a lot of people send stuff in the mail because they're, uh, they're asking for money at this time of the year. Um, and so I got uh, something in the mail from an organization asking for money to help provide um, Thanksgiving or Christmas meals for the homeless. And I read that and I really started thinking about it and I started feeling pity. I started thinking, man, I take for granted the fact that I, um, I'm always able to sit around a nice table with incredible food with my family and eat. I should do something to help provide a meal for these people. So what I did is I took what they gave me and I threw it away thinking I'll look online and hopefully there's a way to give online. Well, I looked and there was no way to give online. And so what I told myself is I will write a check later. Well, it's later and I have yet to provide a Christmas meal for anyone. Has that ever happened to you? Where you feel pity for something and you think to yourself, I should do something about that. But I will do something later. Later is the enemy of mercy. Later causes pity to stall out. Mercy is pity that grows legs and goes and does something. But later is the enemy of mercy. We have to be careful not to put off till tomorrow the opportunities that God has given us to show mercy today. Because when you put off till tomorrow what God has given you to do today, what happens is delayed obedience. Do you know what delayed obedience is? It's just a very sexy way to spell out disobedience. That's what delayed obedience is. It's just disobedience. Mercy is pity with legs. It's compassion in action. This guy had mercy for this man who is in a miserable position. And you want to you want to know why I think Jesus had you know the way Jesus told the story he didn't just have like one guy passed by the, the beaten guy. He didn't just have one guy pass by and one guy stop. No, he had two guys pass by and one guy stop. Why? I think he was trying to show that mercy is not the norm. Mercy is not the norm. Mercy isn't with the majority, it's with the minority. It is not the norm. In this world today, mercy is not the norm. As Christians, our lives should look different because we engage in that which is the minority. Mercy. Our lives should look different. You need to know, Christians should be a lot more known for what they do than what they don't 
do. We should be known for what we do. What we do as Christians is we express and extend mercy to those that are desperately in need of it. You need to know that this world is by no means lacking opportunities for people to show mercy. It's just lacking people who will show mercy. There's plenty of opportunities for us as Christians to extend mercy to those around us. I just want you to think about these things. Just think about the city you live in right now, Waco, Texas. Think about the people in this city who truly are, who are genuinely homeless and genuinely starving. Like I've been lied to a lot by people who are supposedly homeless in Waco. I've been lied to a lot, but I've also sat at my brother's keeper with a guy who is genuinely homeless, telling me in desperation, I will do anything for a job. There's room for mercy in this city. Think about the kids in this city who really don't have a, have a parental figure in their lives. Think about the people in this city who have no type of role model. There's a desperate need for someone to step up and do some type of of mentoring for the next generation. Think about the elderly sitting in nursing homes. We don't think about them, but think about the people, the elderly, who've kind of just been left to grow old in nursing homes. I've seen this, where families just kind of check out on them. Let's zoom out from Waco. Just think about the hunger issues in this world. You're talking about real people just like you and me. You're talking about two, three, four-year-olds actually starving to death. Seriously, I'm not saying this to get an emotional reaction out of you. I'm saying this is the reality of the world we live in. Think about what happens during the next natural disaster. We're on the clock for it. I mean, it's just, it's a matter of time before another earthquake, another hurricane, another tornado, another tsunami hits, and it does devastates a whole community. What are you going to do then? You think about the 27 plus million people, real life people are being trafficked today. The man or woman that is truly acceptable to God is the man or woman in which compassion takes action. Pity grows legs. Let me just tell you, by looking at this story, you need to know, mercy will cost you. You need to know what mercy is going to cost. Just look back at the story real quick before we move on to the next one. It says this, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn. So, Here's what we're left to assume. This guy is taking off his own clothes and tearing off strips from his own clothes just to to bandage up this guy's wounds. He puts this guy on his own animal, meaning he's the one walking. Mercy will prompt you to sacrifice your stuff. It will. It'll prompt you to sacrifice your stuff. It says this. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him in the next day. I like that because what that means is this guy was up all night with this guy. Mercy will, will prompt you to change your plans. Like it will completely interrupt your schedule. It will completely change your day because God's going to prompt you and be like, here's your opportunity. Here's an opportunity for you to extend mercy. What are you going to do? You're going to just, you're going to be so OCD that you can't, You can't slip out of your schedule or you're going to step into what I'm calling you to do right now. Prompt you to to change your plans. Then it says this, take care of them and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Mercy will make a dent in your bank account. It will. It will touch your finances. This is the cost of mercy. This is the cost of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a simple example from my, from my own life, okay? I'm not going to give you a big example. I'm just going to give you one small one where God is working on me on a regular basis, okay? There's, this, there's a guy named Giles. 
Giles is in his 60s and he lives at the Budget Inn on 35 in 18th Street. And every day, Giles, this fragile man in his 60s, pushes a lawnmower all over the city of Waco. I don't know if you've seen Giles, but Giles is this guy in his 60s who pushes a lawnmower all around Waco looking for work. Just to give you a little reference, he lives there, 35 and 18th. I just moved, but I was living at Austin Avenue and Waco Drive, which is right at Waco Drive and Valley Mills, and Giles would walk past my house pushing a lawnmower. I live over three miles from his hotel. Every single day, Giles, in his 60s, pushes a lawnmower round trip at least six miles. Can you imagine that? So here's this guy that I see walking up and down the street every single day, just desperate for work. Why? Because he lives in a hotel and the hotel won't let him stay unless he continues to pay. And so I see this guy whose shoes constantly wear out. He constantly needs a new pair of shoes because the dude is walking six to eight miles a day. Okay. This is a guy who, uh, even when it's 30 and rainy, he's pushing his lawnmower down the street looking for work. This is a guy that when he smiles, he'll show you he can wiggle his front tooth because his teeth are just rotting out. This is a guy who doesn't have the right clothes. His lawnmower, um, he's constantly, the wheels are sometimes just on plastic because he's just worn them out. And I'll tell you this. Um, God has had to work on me on what it looks like to extend mercy to Giles because at first and periodically there's nothing in me that wants to extend mercy. Like I learned what Giles's doorbell ring sounds like. It was like a double ring. It was like bing bing. That's what it sounded like. It wasn't just one. It was like bing bing. I was like, oh, it's Giles. I'm going to sit here quietly. I'm not going to move. I'm going to wait till he's gone. Oh, what? I can't be honest in here? I'm just shooting you straight. There's times where Giles would come, he'd sit down on our front porch and I'd open up the door and be like, Giles, I don't have time today. And then my sweet wife, who's a lot more merciful than I am, she says, we have a responsibility to take care of Giles. Why? Because this was the opportunity that God was putting in our past, saying, this is what I'm calling you to right now. This is what it looks like to be a genuine follower of Christ. You've experienced the mercy of Christ. You extend the mercy of Christ to the people around you. And let me just tell you, it has cost us. Giles comes to our door and he says, do you have any socks? I go in, I'm, I'm running out of socks. He shows up 30, rainy. He's just drenched. Got to go in the closet. I got to give him one of my coats. It's changed our plans. Tuesday morning is kind of my, my time off because Monday's a late night and there's been times where I've found myself on Tuesday morning when I want to just kind of check out. I'm going to tractor supply, trying to track down some new um, mower tires for Giles just so he can push around a mower that has level tires on it. Because when it doesn't, it the lawn looks like a three-year-old who got a hold of some scissors and decided to cut his own hair, okay? That's kind of what it turns out to be when he doesn't have the right tires on his deal. It's dipped into our bank account because Giles comes by and says, man, do you have $10, $20? That's what I need. I got to pay rent so I can stay. But here's the best part about Giles in the process of him coming around our house I've had the opportunity of sitting on our porch and talking to him about where he thinks he's going when he dies and recently Giles prayed to receive Christ sitting on my front porch and I tell you this because here's what happens. Here's what happens when you extend mercy to the people around you. When you extend mercy to the people around you, what you are inevitably doing is you are inviting them in to also come and experience the mercy of God. 
As you extend mercy, you are inviting them into experience mercy. That's what mercy is. It is compassion in action. Jesus tells one more story. We're just going to look at it really quickly so that we can fill out mercy real quick. Hop over with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells another story about mercy. Here's what he says. He says, Matthew 18, verse 23, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, that word pity can also be translated compassion. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So just to kind of give you a picture of what's really going on here in this story. A king basically decides to audit his servants. He decides to settle accounts and he finds a guy who is in the hole about 10,000 talents. Now just to give you an idea of what 10,000 talents is, it's about 12 million dollars. This guy is in the hole 12 million dollars. Like this isn't a guy who just lost track of his credit cards and maxed out one too many. Like some of you guys in here haven't been taught about credit cards and you see credit cards as free money and you love the fact that you can charge hundreds of dollars that you don't have and you just pay off the $20 minimum balance at the end of the month. No one has sat you down and taught you about something called interest, okay? You, my friends, will be very good friends with debt for a very long time, but you will never even come close to accumulating $12 million of debt unless you become the bad guy and like taken three or something like that. But you will never get close to $12 million in debt. This isn't a guy who fell behind on his rent. This isn't a guy who maxed out too many credit cards. This is a guy who is a thief and he has been pilfering from the king. And here he is standing before the king, exposed for who he is. He is a crook. And his punishment is just. He is deserving to be sold along with his wife and kids and all he has so that he can begin to recoup the debt that he could never pay off to the king. And the king, seeing his miserable position, seeing him on his knees, seeing the fear inside of him at the idea of losing his wife and kids, the king looks at him, he sees his miserable predicament, and he extends mercy to him. He cancels out the debt. Did you see what it says? It says that he felt pity for him, so he forgave him the debt. That's compassion in action. That's pity that grew legs and did something. Now watch how the story finishes out. It says this. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have? had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is making a couple of points. The first point he's making is this. Mercy is always intimately acquainted with forgiveness. 
Mercy and forgiveness always go hand in hand because mercy is the fuel to forgiveness. They're inseparable. Second point that he's making is a lot of times in the lives of Christians, there is a disconnect between experiencing the mercy of God and extending mercy to others. There's a disconnect between it. Think about this story. The first part of the story exists to show us the mercy that we have experienced from God. God is the king and we are the servant. God is perfect. And just because of the simple gift of breath in our lungs, what we owe to God is a perfect life. And not one of us has that to offer to God. Every single one of us has accumulated an insurmountable debt of sin towards God. But God's seeing our miserable predicament that there's nothing that we could ever do to repay him or to work off our debt. There's nothing that we could do. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid our debt for us, thus canceling our debt so that we could be right with God. That's why the first part of the story exists, so that we grasp the weight of God's mercy in our lives, that he's canceled out an insurmountable debt. But then think about the second part of the story. We're the servant, and we are the people who often hold grudges and harbor bitterness and anger and resentment. We're the people who give others the silent treatment. We're the people who cut others out of our lives. Why? Because there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between experiencing mercy from God and extending mercy to others. Here's what you need to know. According to this world, you have a right to justice. If a parent wrongs you, ex-boyfriend or girlfriend wrongs you, an ex-friend wrongs you, the world says you have every right to justice. You have a right to blast them and be passive-aggressive on social media. You have a right to rally your crew to hate that person. You have a right to cut that parent or friend out of your life. You have a right to justice. And Jesus shows up and says, because you have experienced my mercy, you surrender your right to justice. Why do you surrender your right to justice? Because I surrendered my right to justice. You think about what Jesus deserved when he was arrested in the garden. Justice for Jesus would have been him tapping into the 72,000 angels that he had access to, bringing them in and wiping everyone out. That would have been justice. Justice would have been him standing before Pilate and exalting himself as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings that he is. That would have been justice. Justice would have been him hanging on the cross. And when people said, you saved others, but you can't save yourself, justice would have been Jesus getting down off the cross and executing judgment on everyone around. But Jesus Christ surrendered his right to justice. And he calls us to do the same. Mercy is compassion in action. And there's going to be times where people wrong you. People wound you badly. And Jesus Christ calls you to forgive. He calls you to see that person's life for the misery that it is. If someone's wronged you, I guarantee you their life is miserable for one of two reasons. Number one, it might be miserable because they feel so much guilt, shame, and regret for what they did, but you refuse to forgive them. Or their life is miserable because their heart is so hard and they are walking down a path of destruction. Jesus calls you to allow compassion to invade your soul and let that compassion fuel action. I'll just make one more observation from this story. I want you to notice the difference in the amounts of debt. The debt that the servant had before the king was much greater than the debt someone else had 
with the servant. And I think Jesus made it like that so that we know that any debt that someone has toward us will always pale in comparison to the debt that we had before God. That's why Jesus never gives any caveats to forgiveness. He never says, forgive everyone unless you've been really hurt. Forgive everyone unless it's a repeat offense. Forgive everyone unless it was this kind of offense. Because this type of offense is unacceptable. Jesus gives no caveats for forgiveness. He says, you forgive. I just want to ask you to close your eyes right now. just want to ask everyone in here to close your eyes right now. just want to ask you to think about this and let God work on your heart. Is there anyone in your life that you still need to forgive? To whom in your life do you need to extend mercy? I just want you to think about this with your eyes closed. As believers in Jesus Christ, our lives should look different because we are different. We are individuals who have experienced the mercy of God. We've experienced His compassion flooding our lives. We've experienced complete forgiveness. All of our failures, all of our debt has been wiped clean before God. And we've been, we are different to make a difference. You think about what I'm saying. We are different to make a difference. There are people in this world who are looking for hope and peace and joy in life. And the goal is that as people search for hope and joy and peace, the hope, the goal is that they would look into our lives, they would see something different, and they would turn to Jesus Christ. But you need to know, a Christian who refuses to extend mercy, a Christian who refuses to demonstrate compassion, a Christian who refuses to let pity grow legs to do something about the injustice in the world, to do something about the miserable lives in this world, to do something about the brokenness in the world, the Christians who refuse to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged them, they are like Waldo without stripes. You are in this world, yet you look no different from it. I'll just say this. We all are hypocrites in here, every single one of us. Every single one of us is missing stripes in one way or another. We all have ways where our lives look too much like this world and not enough like Jesus. His grace and forgiveness are sufficient to cover over all of our failures. But the best thing we can do tonight is take a step. That's the best thing we can do. The best thing we can do is take a step tonight. What's that step? Maybe for you, you are carrying this anger, this bitterness and resentment towards someone in your life. Maybe the the step you take tonight is you just acknowledge before God, God, there's going to come a day where I'm going to have to forgive him. It's not tonight. I'm not there yet, God. I am not there yet. But that day is going to have to come. And I acknowledge that before you tonight. Let it come quicker than I want it to come. Maybe you're realizing that God's giving you opportunities right now to extend mercy to some people whose lives are miserable right now. He's giving you opportunities and that compassion hasn't fueled action and so maybe tonight you just need to say man I'm going to do something about the hunger in this city I'm going to do something about the, the kids in this city who need someone to look 
look up to. Lord, I want to do something about the elderly. I want to do something about the hunger problem in this world. I want to do something about the 27 million who are being trafficked right now. I want to do something. Take a step. Maybe you're here tonight. You heard me talk about the first few beatitudes about realizing your sin, realizing that you failed, seeing it for what it is, sensing deep sadness over it, and now you need to cry out to Jesus for comfort. You invite him in tonight. You just let him speak into your life. You are forgiven. You are forgiven tonight. Ask him to make you new. Maybe you're realizing for the first time that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not spiritually bad. You're spiritually dead. You're realizing there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God, but you're realizing that the mercy of God is applicable to your life because Jesus Christ stepped into this world and your sin became his sin. Your penalty of death became his penalty of death. And now his resurrection to life can become your resurrection for life tonight. If you will call out to Jesus, you give your life to him and you say, Jesus Christ, my life is yours now. Would you forgive me? Would you change me? And now would you lead me? Jesus, we need you. We love you. Thank you for your mercy. Praise you for your mercy tonight. God, would you give us the strength to forgive? We need your strength in us tonight. Help us to take a step. Lord, may we be people who truly look different. Because you have changed us.